how is Africa made to mean? How has it been made to mean? And what is associated with this idea of Africa? I mean, it's weird to talk about it as this one place, but that's exactly the point. How is it that we've come to talk about Africa as a thing, a place in the world, when in fact, you know, it includes 50, over 50 countries, thousands of languages, millions of people, right? Today on the podcast, a conversation about teaching a categorically misunderstood concept, Africa. Our guest today found inspiration for bold new ways of teaching through her own experiences as a student. She recognized throughout her education the ability for teachers to empower or inhibit their students. What's made the biggest difference for me in the classroom as a student has been instructors who made me feel like I had something to offer. And the lack of that does a lot of damage, right? When having instructors who make you feel like you have nothing to offer, that's actually damaging. It's not just neutral, it's damaging. Um, So it's really important for me to um, sort of valorize students' voices and to show them that they're doing it. Welcome to Chalk Radio, a podcast about inspired teaching at MIT. I'm your host, Sarah Hansen, from MIT OpenCourseWare. In this episode, I take you with me to meet Ama Edo, an assistant professor of African studies at MIT. Professor Edo's research centers around the complex array of cultures, traditions, nations, and ideas known as Africa, and how Africa as a concept is produced through material practices, things like music, ritual, performance, and dress. We'll learn how she engages students in unpacking the concept of Africa through the very creative practices that make it. So, What does it look like to challenge the meaning we've prescribed to a place as rich and diverse as Africa? We'll pick up our conversation with Professor Edo's explanation. You know, we're used to speaking of Africa as a place, um, and not just any place, but a place that's burdened with um, a lot of ideas and values that historically have been negative, (laughs) to put it simply. And so what my research and my teaching centers on is about interrogating that. So first, making visible the ways that Africa is made to mean. So that's what I mean with Africa as a category of thought. To understand that Africa means more than just this geographical space. You know, it's also all these countries and all this this very complicated history. But then to see the ways that um, this valence that Africa, quote unquote, has, um, the way that that plays out in all aspects of life, really. Um, so broadly speaking, this is like this question of thinking about Africa as a category of thought is understanding the politics that are involved in, in engaging with the continent in an intellectual manner, politically, and so on. In this course, we use creative practices, so the arts, popular culture, as a way in for two reasons. One, because there's a way that, you know, I don't, I'm not crazy about the term popular culture because there's a way that it seems to devalue it and it's just, you know, kind of fun, (laughs) yet it animates so much of our daily experiences, no matter who you are and no matter where you are in the world. So on one hand, the the purpose of our goal of using this as a way into asking these more kind of theoretical and philosophical questions about Africa as a category of thought um, is to recognize that these everyday practices are actually extremely rich and extremely and just as political as any other form of engagement. But then more specifically to Africa is the fact that Right now, you know, Africa is sort of having this moment where the, its signification is appearing to shift. Part of it is understanding whether it's actually shifting. But where, you know, this, all the stories we had about the continent used to be about war and disease and famine and dysfunction, simply speaking. Um, now there's also another discourse where Africa is hot. Africa is sort of the future. Africa is um, where 
all of these new possibilities are playing out. So whether it's for, or within the um, the business realm, um, or it's or within the arts, or um, the, this idea that Africa is the last frontier. So there's a way that Africa's um, got a new prominence on the global stage, and that that a lot of that is playing out in the realm of um, what I call creative practice, so the arts and popular culture. And that's why it's, I thought that it would be a particularly good angle to take in addressing these sort of loftier questions and seeing the ways that they play out in the day-to-day. Mm-hmm. And also through beautiful and pleasant objects, pleasant things to engage with, things mm-hmm. that um, are moving and that are inspiring, mm-hmm. um, which I think opens us up to um, to thinking and to processing differently when we're moved um, in this other this other way. It makes me wonder how um, th- this specific case of looking at Africa as a category of thought um, and looking at creative practices, like did it open for students new ways of seeing the world in general? Like, does this kind of teaching offer new pathways for critical thinking that's applicable? In many fields, I'd hope so. I mean, my God, that's like that's our dream as educators, right? That any that whatever we do in the classroom in this very limited um, setting or in this limited scale manifests or for our students so that they're able to take it into their um, experiences way beyond the classroom and beyond the specific topic of the course. When I think about the students that I had in the class last year, it was about twelve students, and about half of them were. African or of, so Africans of different varieties. So Africans from the continent, Africans were first generation Americans. And then the other half were American um, of varying ethnicities. And I would say that for all of them, well, certainly for my African students, it was a way that they, I I think it's safe to say, were kind of, were there because they were interested in engaging with um, this part of their experience in a different realm. Um, to actually study it in the classroom instead of it just being kind of what they are immersed in in their day-to-day lives and their back home and so on. Um, and for the non-African students, um, some of them were going to be working in Africa on this, during the summer or had just come back from being on the continent and just wanted to kind of learn more generally about the continent. So to what extent did being in the class broaden their perspectives or kind of give them tools that they could use beyond this particular topic after the class? I think the class might have helped them get language for mm-hmm. to articulate some of um, these questions about power, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and if not always to find answers, so at least be able to notice patterns mm-hmm. and, and sort of mm-hmm. describe what they're seeing. Mm-hmm. So often, you know, we have a feeling that something's not right or that there's something going on here, but we don't quite have the language for it. And I think that that's what a class like this aims to do is to give students language um, to articulate these things that they might be picking up on in different ways. So what does it look like to empower students to follow a feeling? To develop the language to negotiate that feeling into theory? So we met once a week and we focused each session on a, pati- a different form of cultural production okay. um, or or a different theme. So we had performance, and then within performance, we had performance as dress, and then we had literature, and we had film, and we had um, what else, science and technology. And so for each unit, new questions came up. But the thread that cut across them was the same, right? which was a question of how is Africa being made to mean in the world and how are African cultural producers 
engaging in that process of making Africa that mean through their practice. And of course, then the questions that come up about are like, what are the specific issues that arise with this particular form of cultural production, right? So for theater, what does it mean, for instance, to produce a play for an audience in Nigeria to come perform that play in Cambridge, Massachusetts? What are the politics in that? What are the questions that come up um, in carrying this object from one space into the next? The goal was to both reflect um, through each of these cases this underlying question that the course was after, but then to show the nuances or the specificities that um, apply to each particular form of creative production. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately to say, you know, what do we gain by juxtaposing these different things? Is there, you know, what can we learn about um, ideas of technological innovation in or for the continent by looking at them alongside the production of photograph ethnographic portraits in the 19th century in South Africa, for instance. Um, is there a way that these two cases can elucidate one another? Um, and I think, yes. I mean, there's, there's a reason that, you know, I did it that way. But, um, yeah, and I think that, you know, there was also another agenda behind it is that um, being at MIT in particular, where we tend to fetishize technology and, and um and consider it sometimes in a realm outside of other material practices, other ways of knowing. Um, kind of my personal, one of my personal missions is to show that, you know, it's no different. There's just different, they're all objects, they're all ways of doing, they're all ways of knowing, right? So whether we're talking about plant healing or developing the next nano whatever, um, we can think about these things next to each other, no matter where they're happening. And so I think the ways that case studies are useful is that they allow you to both kind of dig deep for that particular situation, bring questions to the fore, um, and then next time kind of consider the ways that those questions um, can apply or when new questions arise when you look at a different situation. Uh, you mentioned performance. And could you speak a little bit about um how students attended performances out in the world as part of this course. Yeah. You know, so that kind of has to happen serendipitously. <laughs> um, it just so happened to be that um, at the time that I was teaching this class, this show came, was, I don't even remember how I found out about it. I think from a mailing list or a friend told me, I don't know, that this, this play was coming to um, to Harvard. Um, and similarly, that uh, Alain Gomis was going to be coming to to Harvard also. And I had, so in the case of Alain Gomis, I had just seen his film at a conference um, a few months before, one of his films, um, and absolutely adored it. And so I'd wanted to teach it. Um, and it was an amazing opportunity to have him here. And, you know, so that because he would also be speaking about the film. And so... Um, in both cases, it was an opportunity. I saw these outings as an opportunity for students to um, to engage with these materials sort of um, in a more social way. So it's one thing to be in your room and to just watch a film on your laptop. It's a different thing to be in an audit auditorium with various kinds of people um, to kind of pick up on the energy that's around you, how people, how other people around you are responding to different parts of the film, right? That's part of the experience also. Not to mention then to hear the filmmaker tell you what they were thinking when they, they created this thing, right? Um, and how other audiences responded to it and so on. Um, and then, of course, just the experience of leaving 
MIT, I think is really useful. Like I, I remember when I was an undergrad, you know, Harvard seemed far. <laughs> it's really not. And so I think part of our duty as, as educators also is to, you know, help broaden our students' horizons, both in the classroom, but also by encouraging them to just go explore right. a little bit beyond campus. Professor Edo also has a unique way of broadening students' horizons within the classroom as well, by reshaping their relationship with academic texts, all part of an intentional process to eradicate the barrier placed between academic work and life. So when I, you know, I've been, I was a student for a very long time. <laughs> and, and I was very frequently frustrated by the fact that, um, Academic texts often feel like they're written to not be understood. Right. And this made me really angry because, you know, when I was in grad school for my PhD, I thought, okay, I've been in school for many years. How is it that this still makes no sense, right? Like, <laughs> right. if it makes no sense to me, like, how, you know, what, what are we doing here, right? What is the point of the academic enterprise if we produce work that can be understood? And so this has been a gripe of mine for a very long time. And, and, and it was all the more frustrating when um, there was no space to express that, right? Because I think the danger when you're a student oftentimes, especially, you know, at, at elite institutions, is that you internalize these, like, when you don't understand, you think there's something wrong with you. Essentially, you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, da 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 da, da. Um, When it's a structural issue, and it's actually on the readers, on the writers to write better, <laughs> write better work, write more clearly. So then that requires, um, I think, an infrastructure to support students in processing this often opaque work. Um, and to me, that's how I was thinking about the reading responses. So as a way to just, when you're forced to sit down and write something about what you wrote, even if it's just like, I don't understand it, these are all the questions that are coming up for me, it already pushes you along, like kind of your understanding for yourself. And then also gives me as the instructor a way to know where you're at and you know what I need to bring to the, 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 the kind of in the classroom discussion. So what I asked students to do was to try to summarize the key points of the argument. Um, and then they were free to take it in any number of directions. It could either relate it to other work that we've read in class. Um, they could relate it to stuff in the news that they're seeing around it. They could relate it, seeing around them and kind of use what was coming up in the readings as a way to make sense of these things they were observing around them. Mm -hmm. um, or kind of related to their personal experience, um, something going on in their own lives or, you know, and the, what I wanted to do there was, again, to to show that what we do in the classroom is not separate. Academic work isn't separate from life, right? Like it's right. not, and it's not something that's only accessible to some people, right? We are always theorizing. When we make sense, making sense of our experience is about theorizing. And so to offer possibilities for students to make these links between what they're reading for school and what they're experiencing in the world around them. Um, if we can do that, I think, you know, we're in great shape as educators. I really love, you know, being able to point to something that they've said in making my argument, right? So, or, or in presenting my lessons. So if I can say, yeah, as you brought up in your paper, this thing is going on in the reading. That's exactly right. And we also see, you know, so it, to show that, um, one, I'm taking their work seriously. Right. Um, and also that they have something to offer. Like, to me, I think right. um, what's made the biggest difference for me in the classroom as a student um, has been instructors who made me feel like I had something to offer. Um, and, and you know, and the, the, the lack of that does a lot of damage, right? When have, having right. instructors who make you feel like you have nothing to offer, that's actually damaging. It's not just neutral, it's damaging. Um, so it's really important for me to... Um, sort of valorize students' voices and to show them that they're doing it. 
Part of why we wanted to profile Professor Edo's teaching of her Global Africa class was her willingness to try things in the classroom that were new to her, such as inviting students to participate in creative production. This approach culminated in a final project assignment that, um, to say the least, exceeded expectations. In the final project assignment, uh, students were asked to examine how Africa's place in the world is negotiated through creative production. What kind of challenges did students take on in this work? My poor students. Um, <laughs> my poor students because this was an experiment. I thought it'd be really cool. I mean, it seemed, you know, it seemed like the right thing. In the course, we were looking at people who were making creative work, doing creative work in different arenas. It seemed like the right way to culminate, to ask students to do the same themselves. And yeah, I had no idea how it would turn out because I didn't know what they were bringing to the table, if they, you know, what particular skills they had, like creative skills or Uh so on. But I want to believe, this is something I, I try to enact in my own life, that we all have creative skills. And so whatever you have, we can do something with it. And they were, you know, bless them because they were game for the experiment because I hadn't <laughs> done this before. I didn't know how it was, how it was going to go. Um, but I, I asked them to pick a topic that they were interested in, either something we'd already talked about in class that they wanted to take farther or another, another topic altogether. And the key was to use this object, this thing that they would make um, as a way to think through these questions about Africa's place in the world. It's quite broad. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was so happy with the things they came up with. You know, it was wonderful. It was, it was so fun. Um, we had anything from, like, there was one student who was interested in plants. Now, she picked this plant, one of these, I think it's like the ficus plant, some plant that's really sexy right now in, like, the interior de- decoration, uh-huh. decorating world. Um, and it's a plant that grows on the side of the street in West Africa and so on. And so she did this cool project where she, she took the plant and looked at, the different ways that it is um, made to mean as a kind of um, mm-hmm. luxury decoration item and versus in Central Africa where it's used for, I forget, like a, some part of the tree is used for bark cloth. And so from there, so you could talk about the circulation of objects and the way that value gets articulated mm-hmm. and so on. Or other students who um, wanted to talk about the way that tradition, that's kind of, yeah, related, the way that tradition gets articulated. Um, and they were interested in looking at um, wedding ceremonies in, um, in Nigerian American sort of in a Nigerian American context where people are kind of working across these different um, cultures, these two different cultural realms, um, and to consider, you know, what do you keep of a tradition? What do you update? What does it mean to um, treat women a particular way and men a particular way? What should, what, what should you uphold? What should you, you know, resist? Um, given, you know, when you're a Nigerian-American and you're kind of beholden, you belong to the two different cultures. And so what they did, which I thought was so brilliant, was that they put together um, a picture book because you'd also, one of the classes had talked about um, these photo novels as a genre of um, image and story um, telling, image production and storytelling. And so they used that format that we talked about um, in the class and took the theme that they were interested in around sort of the, the politics of tradition um, and in Igbo weddings and wrote a story that featured them grappling with these questions. So it was quite meta because they told you, you know, they, they talked about the, the topic they were interested in, but then they also showed you the questions that they brought up. It wasn't a resolved thing. Um, and it was meant to be circulated and it was an object that could be used to spur questions and so on. Um, 
And so it was fantastic. I loved, I, I so enjoyed them. There was some, we had a coffee ceremony in class, um, like an Ethiopian coffee ceremony and the sort of questions that brings up about what does it take to actually enact um, what the ceremony is, is supposed to enact when you take it out of Ethiopia and when you take it into a dorm room, for instance, and you only have certain implements to use, to what extent, you know, does it retain its value, its significance? But it was wonderful to see them start out being like, oh my God, I have no idea what I'm going to do. And then just figuring it out and coming up with something amazing. We actually have the example of the Wedding Conflict book on the OCW website. We've linked to it in the show notes, so be sure to take a look. To close our conversation, I wanted to see what advice Ama has for other educators looking to employ some of her techniques in their classes. What are her strategies for keeping her class engaging, thoughtful, and illuminating? So one key thing is being clear on what the core issue is in the class, right? So what's the core? What's the, the question that animates this class? And for me, it's useful to kind of know that and have that because that helps me sort of adjust as needed, right? So to figure out, okay, what do I need? What do I, what do I want these students to come away with no matter what? So that if what I have planned is not taking us there, then I can try something else that might get us there. Um, so being clear on this question, so for this class, you know, Global Africa, Creative Cultures, the idea was to examine Africa's place in the world as that's being made visible through different kinds of creative practice. So I structured it according to things that I was familiar with from my work um, or interested in and that I wanted to explore more. So that's one way to, to go about deciding what the different units are going to be, right? Um, so I'm, I'm interested in dress, for instance, and so performance as dress was something that I was really into doing. So the, the, the pieces of the class can be completely different. Um, they can focus on different kind of creative practices. You can spend more than one week on a particular creative practice, right? So the, the building blocks can be different. And as long as the core question is, um, is clear, then you can sort of tailor that to your interest. But then also to what's available. What's cool about the, the notion of kind of creative practice is that it's very broad. Like it can be as broad as you want it to be. So it can be restructured, you know, any number of ways depending on the resources that are available and the questions that um, you or your, st- or your students are interested in. And tied to that is the fact that, so someone told me, a colleague told me once that we're talking, we're both, you know, first year faculty and we're both talking about how exhausted we were all the time. And she said someone told her, you know, that teaching is essentially like stand-up or improv, right? Mm-hmm. Like you get up there and you're on and it's improv because you are responding to what your students are giving you and you have no idea what it's going to be. No matter how well-planned it is, you have no idea where it might end up. And you have to respond. So it's not just that you're there taking it, but you have, based on what you're getting, you have to figure out where to take it in order to come back to the conclusions that you think you need to end at um, and also be open to that not happening. Um, and when you're new, you just, you, you don't know. And, and when you've been a student and you've had these professors up front who seem to know exactly what they're doing, what they're talking about, um, you don't fully appreciate the fact that it's a lot of um, intuitive and improvisational work. And so you can be surprised at how taxing it is, you know. So at the end of a three-hour class, I mean, I was wasted. All, you know, you're just, you're just so tired um, because it requires so much energy. So that's something to just kind of be aware of, um, which also then can inform you 
like inform your preparation. So to know what do you need to do in order to have as much, you know, to stock up, to fill up your tank so that you can then do this three hour improv performance. And, you know, generally the less tightly designed it is, the better things work out. This is what I found and what I've heard other colleagues say that, you know, the days when they were running from meeting to meeting and they didn't quite have enough time to finish their course prep were actually the days where the class went really well because Mm -hmm. they had no choice but to be there and listen to the students and meet them where they were and follow that organic um, progression of the conversation instead Mm -hmm. of sticking to their script. Yeah, so I think, you know, the key pieces of advice I would give are kind of one, flexibility, both in sort of the approach to teaching and recognizing the flexibility that you have in designing the course and choosing what you put in it. Mm-hmm. And then and, and tied to this flexibility, this experimental approach to building it and to adjusting it as, as it goes. And then as a broader kind of like teaching philosophy thing, um, what I said about using the time in the classroom as a time to build our students' confidence, right? To, to instill in our students a sense that they know, like they, 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 they are capable of doing this work, to validate, to affirm, and to use that as a starting point for what it is that we want to impart um, onto them, you know? Mm-hmm. But really to start from, um, to kind of undo some of the damage <laughs> that academic work has done for so many people, which is that it's alienating. And so to, to try to... Um, yeah, to make it less alienating, to, to say, you know, we can do this and we, we know how to do this and we're learning and it's okay to not know because we're in school to learn, right? <laughs> we're right. not supposed to know everything when we come here. Um, so to make that as part of the, the mission beyond both, beyond the content of the class itself, to just say it's okay to not know and to not know this particular material, but we know how to learn um, and that's what we're here for. Ama Edo is an assistant professor of African studies at MIT, and now you can follow her work wherever you are in the world. In the show notes, we've posted a link to our faculty page, which includes more information about her research background and scholarly works. As a bonus, we're also giving you a link to the Spotify playlist that one of her students created for the class. It is fantastic. Go take a listen. Also in our show notes, you'll find a link to Ama's Global Africa course on MIT OpenCourseWare. For those of you who might be new to the OCW website, you'll find virtually all of MIT's course content for you to explore. If you're an educator, build curricula of any kind, or are just plain curious, please take a look. We are dedicated to making access to all of MIT's course content free and open for the world. Visit us at ocw.mit.edu. In this podcast, we'll be sharing our conversations with some of the amazing MIT educators who've helped populate OCW and whose work has been shared thousands of times from our site. Thanks for listening, and please stay tuned. In the meantime, share this episode with a friend or leave a review on iTunes. 